0: Straight from the hard coal region of northeastern Pennsylvania. The podcast by coaches
1: for coaches.
0: Welcome to Fan Box Baseball
2: with your hosts, Corey Nido and Paul McGloin. Now let's hit the field running.
1: Welcome back to another edition of Bandbox Baseball. I'm Paul McGloin, along with Corey Nido. Corey, one of the things I wanted to talk about today, getting into this next session, is how, over the past three or four weeks, the story of the signs stealing with the Houston Astros has unfolded. Can you give us kind of a review of that?
0: Yeah, so when we discussed it last, to believe it was three or four weeks ago, that the Astros uh, potentially were using technology to steal signs um, over the last couple of years. MLB conducted an investigation, found out that it was, in fact, true, and uh, the Astros were handed a a penalty or a punishment, if you will, by Rob Manfred, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, fined $5 million, lost uh, their first and second-round draft picks for the next two drafts, and their manager, A.J. Hinch, their general manager, were uh, suspended for a year. But then the Astros owner, Jim Crane, took it a step further, and fired both Hinge and the general manager, Jeff Leno. So uh, it, it's a thing that shocked Major League Baseball. It's still happening. Uh, Carlos Beltran was named in the investigation. He just recently took a managerial job with New York Mets. He has since stepped down. Alex Cora, who was the bench coach with Houston during all this, um, obviously has had some great success with the Boston Red Sox. He and the Red Sox, quote-unquote, mutually Separated and major league baseball is still supposed to hand out a punishment for him, but this uh, this is definitely rock baseball um, I know in my office being in the minor league baseball office, everybody was paying attention everybody was glued to their computers or their tw- or Twitter their phones however they could get updates on it so uh, it remains to be seen what Cora gets Some think Cora might get even a heavier suspension um, for what 's worth my opinion i don't think the punishment for the Astros was harsh enough um in baseball your first two draft picks sometimes never pan out it's not like football or basketball where they can be immediate impact players five million dollars to one of the most successful franchises in the last decade doesn't seem like a lot to me i think they should have been banned from making the postseason for at least three years that didn't happen but um you know it's a start and hopefully we don't see this continue you think the players should have been punished I do if if there was uh, enough evidence. um, I know Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman have really been um, in the the limelight in that regard. Um, I don't know if there's enough evidence. And Rob Manfred said that it would be too tough to impose penalties against players because they didn't know the severity of who did what. Um, But, you know, if it does come out that Altuve and Bregman had some kind of buzzer system on them, that the rumors are circulating right now on social media – Um, Yeah, I mean, I think they should be suspended for a very long time. I mean, there's no room for this in the game, Um, and it's really amazing to me that this kind of all got figured out through social media. We talk about the day and age where everything's on social media, and I'm sure you tell your kids at your uh, academy and the coaches we we've spoken to tell their athletes, hey, be careful and mindful of what you put on social media. But there's people out there that were able to dissect it and take what the reports were saying and find out the whistling, the banging of the garbage can for Houston, and it it really helped the MLB kind of get this decision right, and and hopefully it won't happen again in the future.
1: That's a great way of putting it. My whole thing, number one, is like you had said, I think it's very difficult for them to decipher what players were involved and to what severity, so therefore it becomes very difficult to punish them. It's funny how you mentioned social media, because the thing that's popping up now is Pete Rosen's face everywhere.
0: Yeah. And, and you you know, know.
1: Well, basically, you know, you're going to ban me for life. We have evidence of guys cheating within games and haven't done anything about it, which is obviously another story. But um, a couple of things. I, I just think that we, something we did mention earlier, that as a coach, you never want to teach kids to cheat. You want, never want to teach it if they're older, if they're adults in this case. You never want to teach your players to cheat. And sign stealing has been going on probably since the first week this game has been invented. And there's a, to me, there's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way, and we mentioned this before. If you have a high school team, you have a college team, and they're doing something that's so blatantly obvious that they actually deserve to have a sign stolen, then that's one thing. Right. But unfortunately, if you're using technology to cheat, that's a complete other story. The one thing I do think, and again, I'm not, I'm playing devil's advocate I'm not necessarily taking the side of an A.J. Hinch or a Cora or a Beltran, but if you can put yourself in this position, I think what Manfred's done though, is now opening the door for the coaches or managers are going to be responsible for what their players do. And I'm sure he knew, but, and again, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth and I don't want to talk, speak ill of a, another coach on profession, but let's just say, for example, now going further, a manager or coach has a player do something that he's not aware of. Do you still hold that coach responsible because it happened on his watch?
0: Right, and that, and that's the tough part. You know, where do you draw that
1: line? That's what's going to happen going forward when you get into this stuff. Now, obviously, again, this this is a little different because the the evidence was overwhelming. That you know, how do you not how do you not know that this transpired? But again, it comes back to the whole thing. Where we're not going to punish the players, but we're going to punish the GM, and we're going to punish the manager because you were the guys in, in charge when this thing happened.
0: Right, and and it's tough. I know AJ Hinch um, apparently, according to reports,
1: smashed a couple of the monitors
0: that were involved in the the cheating scandal uh, to show his disapproval, but apparently they were just replaced within a couple of days. So I'm not sure if Hinch was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place and didn't want to be a whistleblower, so to speak, but mm-hmm. um, you're right. I mean, the the, co- the managers, the coaches, the GM, they are now going to be responsible regardless if if they knew or not.
1: I think we're going to be talking about this for the next few months and definitely puts a black eye on the game. I don't think the story's going away anywhere. Let's call it the way it is. Hitch is an exceptional coach and a manager. I don't think he's going to have a tough time finding another job eventually when this thing goes over.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I think him and even the GM maybe. I mean, the GM for the Astros, uh, I mean, he basically became the second wave of analytics. Yeah, Bill James and then Jeff Lanau. So, I mean, it, it just, I think both will find a job um it's just a matter of what team and what franchise would want to sort of take the baggage so to speak of you know what they're going to be asked throughout the season and in leading up to their hiring
1: yeah, I'd be interested to get Coach Mike Bell's take. was a two-way guy at Florida State, a two-time academic ACC honor roll selection. After his career at Florida State, was a 20th-round selection in 1995 by the then-Montreal Expos. Spent six years in the minor leagues, finishing out his career at the AA level with the Baltimore Orioles. here. coached high school ball in Florida for two years. He was pitching coach and recruiting coordinator at Division II Powerhouse Florida Southern. 2005, 2007 was at the university of tennessee from 08 to 11 was at the university of oklahoma returned to florida state from 2012 to 2018 as the pitching coach and then became the fifth head coach in the history of the university of pittsburgh in 2019 and along the way numerous accolades and numerous achievements and accomplishments so coach how did i do on that You did
2: pretty good. That's pretty pretty good. That's a lot of miles we put in there, a lot of bags we packed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah,
1: Yes. we're excited to have you on, man. I know you're a long time, I really appreciate everything. First thing I wanted to talk about with you, because it's a hot topic and it's something that we had mentioned in our intro that is going on right now in baseball, is the subject of science dealing with the Houston Astros. Yeah, and we all seen the punishments that have been handed down and the report issued by Robert Manfred. Just wanted to get your take on this whole situation. Well, I
2: think it goes back to more than just stealing signs, and you can go back through the history of the game for the individuals that, that love the history. And you had your, I'll say, your era of strength and conditioning that evolved into what is legal strength and conditioning and uh, illegal, you know, guys are always trying to, uh, I don't want to say gain an egg, but they're looking for an advantage or competitors. And you went through that period where major league baseball had to really look into what was going on there and, and how to keep the, the playing field level, um, Now you're getting into uh, what is recorded as sign stealing, which has always been an art of the game, but the part of it that right now has a lot of people in question is the part that the game has really been expanded on, and that's technology. Mm -hmm. So finding out what is legal from an art of sign stealing between the white lines and what is crossing the line of using technology, which everybody wants to use nowadays to to measure numbers, to uh, watch film. To, whether it's mechanics, whether it's swing paths, but to cross the line to relay information in-game while it's happening, that's where we have a problem within our game. And not only in on the professional level, I'll, I'll tell you, from the college level as well. And what you're dealing with is not only wins and losses, you're dealing with careers, you're dealing with historical numbers, you're dealing with um, retirement plans, lifelong contracts, and there's always going to be somebody out there that feels like they've been cheated because they're on the wrong side of it. But I do think anytime you are dealing with technology in the game while the game is going on and, and being able to relay it instantly, we have a serious problem.
1: I, I remember – we mentioned this when the story first broke in the podcast. and I remember 20 years ago in the Division One meeting at the ABCA convention, they brought it up about college baseball programs using technology to relay signs and cheat. And it's going back that far ago, At our level, we were talking about college baseball, and now it's, it's reared its head. And I ran across, and his name eludes me at the time, but I ran across the name of a guy who had a lot of experience in professional baseball, and he basically said that taping has been going on for a long time, going back to when guys were using cameras with V.A. Tapes and trying to steal signs, and they they would do things like, all right, they have our hit and run sign, so they would say, listen, first base runner that gets on, I'm gonna give you the hit and run sign. Don't do it. And then that was the chess match that was going back and forth between taping it back then, but now all of a sudden, as you mentioned, the technology has advanced. So now it's become a lot easier, a lot more effective, and obviously more apparent. But one of the the rationales we've used we discussed in the past is, believe it or not, you still see it in high school ball, Mike, and you still see it in travel ball, which you get to second base and there's a catcher flash on one side.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
1: we say, look, if if they're going to do stuff like that, then they deserve to have our base runners relaying the the pitch to the hitter. 100%. But it's a different story if guys are being aided by technology. And I just say, as coaches, we don't ever want to teach kids to cheat. So to me, it's like you said, it's between the lines, but where is the line where this is too much? And the other thing I wanted to get your opinion on that we had mentioned that I'm I'm playing devil's advocate in a way, but they punished, we talk about punishing A.J. Hinch and punishing the GM for what basically transpired on their watch. And, and again, I'm not I'm not going to speak negative of another coach in our profession or anything like that, but it seems like that Hinch knew what was going on. But in a way, they're pun- they're, they didn't punish the players and they punished the head coach for something that transpired on his watch. So it makes me think going forward now, as a coach, are you responsible for knowing everything your players do, everything that's going on? Otherwise, if you don't, and something gets by you might get punished for it.
2: You're, you're spot on 100% yeah. there. Uh, when you sign up to be a head coach, when you sign up to be a leader of men, um, a CEO, so to speak, of an organization, you're responsible for everybody. Mm-hmm. And you have to know not only what your players are doing, your strength coaches, your trainers, um, that's your job to communicate, to oversee – Um, And if you have something that's going on that you don't agree with or that is crossing the line, it's up to you internally to make sure it doesn't happen. Um, As you were talking about, as you were talking about putting down a one sign at second, uh, we preach this and teach this and every, every day at our practices and our interquads, if we're tipping pitches as a pitcher, whether it's wiggle on the finger or gripping a you know, wet fan in a glove, that's shame on us for not cleaning that up. If, we don't. If we have a sign system that is so simple that somebody's going to pick it between the lines just by watching it and looking at it, that's shame on us. Um, but using technology to break it down, watch it as it's happening, then relay it—that's shame on somebody else.
1: Right. Exactly. That's a great way of putting it. Uh, so, like like Corey and I were speaking about you know, the story's not going to go away for a while. It's a little bit of a black eye on the game, definitely a black eye on, and as you mentioned, when you said, like, salaries and retirement plans, it's a black eye on the team and guys that have won batting titles over other guys, now they're winning championships, and, you have players speaking out saying that this stuff might not have transpired if they didn't have the use of technology to improve their ability to win games. So it's not going anywhere. It's, uh, it's unfortunate, but those waters are going to stay murky for a while. Switching gears here a little bit, it's exciting that you're in Pennsylvania, and for us as coaches and other fans of the game, it's exciting that you're at the University of Pittsburgh. So one of the things I wanted to ask you first off here going is, what do you think about the weather up here? I mean, you're a Sunshine State boy.
2: Well, it's funny you say that. We had a, a prospect camp yesterday, and um, obviously we were inside because we had one to three inches come through the, the western part of the state. And ironically, I had some guys from Florida up for the camp, and I told them, I said, "You get white sand beaches here. I got I got you crystal white outside right now too." You know? so, <laughs> um, the beautiful thing about what we do here at the University of Pittsburgh, and and this is college baseball. This, we're not you know trendsetters here by any means, but uh, we have facilities, and when you have facilities and you have commitment with a program, you can make sure you're doing stuff on a daily basis. You know, we ran 75 kids through a prospect camp yesterday um, like it was no problem because we had the space, we had the room, we had the facilities, we had the uh, the technology to run them through but to, to gather the numbers, the data, the analytics. Um, it's been a great transition, not only for me personally, for my family. Um, everybody I talk to, uh, in the Whitfield area, they want to know, hey, you realize winter's coming. Yes, I do realize it. Um, but we're, we're taking a mindset and I've used this kind of cliche term. It, it's 75 and sunny. It's more about what you make out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, we get snow or we get rain and can't go outside. We're going to take care of business inside. Uh, mm-hmm. whether it's Miami, Florida state, Georgia tech, somebody down in the South, they get rain and can't go outside, they go inside. So right. it, you can use it as a crutch, you can use it as an excuse, mm-hmm. or you can get that mindset of we're going to get better today. Um, you know, our live sessions this past weekend and our skill work and our eight-hour week were phenomenal. Wow. Competition that we create between the, the the pitcher, the hitter, the catcher, you know, the relationship from the from the coach to the catcher, all these scenarios and, and, and competition that we create in the one-on-one battles and executing quality at bats versus executing pitches on the mound to develop our guys. Uh, It's a great environment and it's a great lead-up to what we're hopefully getting on the field this weekend looking at 50-degree weather.
1: For the coaches that might be listening to the podcast, Mike, the guys that are coaching youth league ball, the guys that are coaching high school ball, and again, as you mentioned, whether they're in a a tropical climate and they have to go inside via rain, or if they're in a a cold weather state and they have to go inside due to snow, what's some advice based on how you structure your practices that you can give to these coaches when you go inside? You know, um,
2: I think one of the neatest things is when I do speak to coaches and conventions and uh, you know, I, I don't want them to feel like, oh, this guy invented the game of baseball. Or, He's having a double day, and I try to let them know, like guys, I've coached at the high school level, Division Two level. I played junior college ball before I played Division One ball. To me, it's about organization. It's about structure. Um, you have to know your surroundings. You have to know what your facility can hold, and you've got to plan things out and make sure that it is going to allow everybody whether you're a team of 25 or a team of 35 to expand and build on what their skill set is. Uh, and we always try to use the, the phrase of we're going to all before we walk and walk before we jog and jog before we run. It's, it's tough to just jump right into it. Like you're going to play a nine inning scrimmage inside. Like you got to make sure most importantly, you're building up the arms and the arm strength. You know, obviously inside making sure that we can position players that, the mobility and, and taking care of the hamstrings and the bodies and the movement. And i do not saying ease them, easing them into it, but making sure that we have a build-up process uh, with these athletes. And, and the competition will come out once you've developed, I'll say, your structure, um, your, your lead-ups, uh, and, you know, from skill work and training to competition. Um, I think that's one of our biggest problems, Nowadays, and I'm not saying travel ball or society or anything like that, but the youth of nowadays, the kids of nowadays that come up, they love to train. They don't love to compete. Mm-hmm. They love to train. They love to get a personal lesson, but they don't love to compete. And understanding what it is to compete, that when you step across the line, somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose, whether it's in that batter or a game. Not learning to accept it, but learning how to handle it and use it as fuel for your next step, or your next game. Kids love to train. They don't always love to compete.
1: That's right. a great point. And I don't want to be redundant, but I told story, <laughs> the story last podcast. You'll love know, yeah. this one. We, we, we a, instead of having a weekend off in the travel ball circuit right now, but we instead of having a weekend off, we did an exhibition game, and we tied. And I looked, and both dugouts were walking off the field to shake hands. Long story short, I met with the other coach, and I met with the umpires, so we finished this game. And my, <laughs> my post-game talk was, when, when did it become okay to
2: tie? Right.
1: Buddy, that's a whole two-hour conversation we have in and of itself, and you know, yeah. I don't know that I don't, I don't know that you can necessarily blame anybody. It's where the coach; you can't blame the kids because it's where the culture's taken taking them. But it, it's become more important to to show well than it has been to compete, and it's something that we're constantly, hopefully, want to change in this game.
2: I think some of that too is they get the opportunity to do so much, which is a beautiful thing, mm-hmm. but sometimes uh, they take for granted an at bat; they take for granted a game instead of what um, it really means.
1: Mike, in five of your seven seasons at Florida State, the pitchers record over 500 strikeouts. You had something ridiculous like 314, 136-0 and 0 as a win-loss record when you were at Florida State. Then, you know, including the success that you had at Oklahoma and at Tennessee. You had 22 players selected in the Major League Draft, including three first-round selections. And then at the time you spent at Oklahoma, you established even higher standards, where you posted the lowest ERA in something like 23 years as a staff at the University of Oklahoma. You, You were an exceptional pitcher in your time as a player, but you've established yourself as one of the premier pitching coaches in America. So can you please talk just about how you handle pitchers and what your philosophy has not
2: handling them? Well, I think first and foremost is <laughs> I've surrounded myself with some pretty good arms. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that usually sure. helps. Uh, sure. Now, I think, you know, if I was talking to a young pitching coach, um, one of the first pieces of advice I would give to them is understand your student-athlete, understand your pitchers. Uh, there's not one shoe that fits all you have to find out what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, what they need to continue to sharpen as a skill, but what they need to acquire and, and build on. And and when I say that, I mean, I was a pitchability lefty growing up, But I've had the pleasure of working with some power right-handers. Well, what's a pitchability lefty really going to teach a power right-hander? He better know what a power right-hander needs to do. Um, and, and when I say that, there's just not one way to do it. And that's the beautiful thing about the competition of the, the pitcher versus the hitter. Um, you know, I, I do believe in a lot of structure. Uh, some things that I've always said, the guys that throw the farthest throw the hardest. I'm a big believer in throwing each and every day.
1: Uh,
2: I think sitting and resting for two, three days and then picking up a ball does not do it for you. Uh, I'm a big believer length equals strength. I believe that, you know, feel is just as important as a way to ball. Um, but you better understand as a pitching coach what way to balls can do for your guys. You better understand what bands and recovery programs can do for your guys. Because the day that they compete or the day that they step on the mound should be the easiest day for them. What right. they do the other Six days as a starter. What they do the other two days as a reliever to recover to get ready. That is where we make our
1: money.
2: You know, we typically have had staffs of somewhere around 18 guys. I've always tried to say, or even even 12 to 13 guys you're going to use. But I've always said your first four guys. A lot of times you need to pat them on the butt, stay out of their way. Mm-hmm. You need to to be there to reel them back in every now and then. If, You know, they're getting a a little loose from what they really are. Your middle four guys, you are constantly, you know, one way or or another, reeling them back in or pushing them to become one of the top four. But where a young pitching coach can really make his money is what can you get out of eight through 12? Right. What can you get out of those guys? Because it's about building staff. It's not just one or two guys. Mm -hmm. It's about a starter. It's about... what I call a gap guy. It's about having a back-end closer. But you need to make sure we're using all 12 guys to get to wherever you want
1: to be. I love to use the phrase about how um, the easiest day should be game day. That's something that we've often preached to our pitchers during their rehab days. And we always tell them, listen, you can't be the type of guy that gets out of mound once a week. You have to understand the importance of keeping your body in shape and doing the right thing between starts. Can you kind of just highlight some of the major points of what you guys do on their recovery days, their rehab days, building up to their prehab, and going into their next outing? Yeah, and
2: I've said this all along. Like, uh, it's it's something that you have to build into. there's guys that, that come into our program or the programs I have worked with and there's there's some transition period because kids come from all over the country and they come from different walks of life and some guys are multiple sport guys and some guys are all in on the baseball and you know actually when i say activating and picking up a baseball each and every day it gets to be tough for some guys i, I saw that back in the mid 90s when i was in pro ball with the Montreal Expos that, you know what it did for uh, Young high school kids that signed or a college guy like myself, just the, the ability to, uh, when I say post each and every day, but the routines and the habits you create from your from your band routines to your agility and warm-up routines to a consistent throwing program. Um, I'm a big believer in flat ground. I, I, you know, some, some, some people are, feel like they have to be on the slope each and every time they do something. To me, to go from a flat ground to the slope just shows athleticism. It shows feel,
1: right? Um,
2: but the touch and feel of your delivery, um, with the with the with the feel of the baseball coming out of your hand on a daily basis, is a big key for me. Um, so those are some of the daily routines and daily habits that we try to preach. You know, arm care, recovery. We, we're going to have a long distance day, but we're going to have a like a longer sprint day, and, and then roll right into medium sprint, short sprint because. We want an explosive movement over a long period of time. We're not just going to run cardio each and every day just to get the lactic acids out and just to run to run. Um, We're big into explosive movements in the weight room. Uh, The old old days of, hey, don't touch a weight, you're a pitcher kind of thing, Uh, again, don't believe in it. Uh, I believe in strength, but I believe in range of motion. I'm a big stretch guy. My wife and I, she she tells me all the time, she she wishes our guys would do Pilates every day. And <laughs> uh, it, it, I, it, but I'm a big believer in, in a lot of the strength, in the, in a lot of the range of motion. Um, those are all the recovery things of of knowing your body, having full range to be able to perform and post each and every day. Uh, we do a lot of soft tissue correctives. Um, it sounds like a it's it's a high pause or buffet of things. And that's what we try to do. We try to provide opportunity for guys. Uh, Some guys have routines when they come in. Some guys we help create routines for. And, again, that goes back to what their their strengths are, their weaknesses. We have some guys that are uh, tight hamstrings, no flexibility guys. We have some guys that are rubber band guys. You know, so Mm -hmm. some guys need to add strength. Some guys need to cut weight. It's different for each and every guy. So we do an array of assessment stuff on the front end develop their program as they go through, and then as they develop their roles from starters to relievers, we kind of help tie that all together.
1: That's funny how you mentioned the Pilates because there's, as you know, as we all know, there's so many different theories and philosophies now and so many different types of exercises, whether you're talking about dynamic, static. That are available at the player's disposal more than there's ever been in the history of the game.
0: Yeah,
1: and uh, my wife took me to a yoga session once with her, mm-hmm. and I look and I see like a seventy-year-old woman who's more flexible than I am sitting next to me, and I thought that I thought to myself, you know what, man? If I got back into college ball, it's almost like I would try to make sure our players took a yoga class or something to get into that stretching because the stretching is just so much more important, not only in your in your in your in your pre, but also when you're post. But one of the things you'd also mention that I agree with, and I'd mentioned. To players that I've worked with in the past as we all know the studies have shown that working out flat ground takes a lot less out of your arm than it does working off the slope but unfortunately we don't pitch off the flat we pitch off the slope but there's been guys where I've said listen that you're, you're telling me you don't feel right you're telling me you don't feel like you're spinning it right let's get to 50 feet and let's work on flat ground if you can't do it in that environment you're not going to be able to do it off of the slope at 66 and I think that's worked for some guys I've I've had in the past um and it's like you had mentioned I think it really comes down to Locating what works with in the individual pitcher, and since you might have 18 different pitchers from 18 different schools and 18 different backgrounds, it makes your job a little bit more difficult because you have to find out what clicks for each one of them, right?
2: 100, percent and yeah. I'll go back. I'll go back to the word athleticism. Yeah. Um, in the youth of America nowadays, too, they're going to play on some fields where that mound's 10 inches, some okay. is 14, some it might be eight. So. It's not going to be just the exact slope each and every time. So when we're talking about training, when we're talking about developing, uh, whether you're on, on a mountain because it's your bullpen session once a week or whether it's a daily routine, um, I've always tried to say this. Guys get off the tee every day and they go hit the cage every day. Flat ground for me is like you hitting off a tee. It's like a position guy's version of the tee work. You're working something. Are you working your delivery? Are you working the feel out of your hand? Um, are you trying to understand what your ball does? You know, if you have different arm angles, you have different grips, I'll go back to it. Half of it is guys understanding who they are and what they are. Can they command what their baseball normally does? Are they a sinker guy? Are they a 4 guy with ride? I mean, it's there's a lot to it. Understanding who you are, you know, compete and throw consistent strikes is half the battle.
1: One last thing in that area, Mike. You're, I think, maybe three or four years older than me, but we're both from the same same generation. Just think about how pitching has evolved during our time as players to now coaches in the game. Everything from just the training, getting your body in shape, the weight training, biomechanical analysis, the use of metrics and technology, and then the big thing now, obviously, is weighted ball programs. So, mm-hmm. what's your what's your thought on the weighted ball program? Well, it, I'll get
2: to the weighted ball, just to say, one of the biggest things, you've talked about it, you hit on it earlier when I was talking about my time at Oklahoma, there was a time when everybody wanted the ball in the bottom of the zone.
1: Everybody wanted Mm -hmm. to sink
2: it. Everybody wants something in the bottom of the zone, bottom of the zone, bottom of the zone. Now you have launch angle, you know, with the hitters trying to create more loft, so now you have guys pitching to the top of the zone. So Mm -hmm. it's always a cat-mouse game. Um, The old school of not picking up a weight, okay, you're going to take days off, those kind of things. Like I said, I think the body will always adapt. What you're seeing with the weight of ball are, for me, two things. Number one, it's less throws to get loose, so you're game ready, but also you're training uh, training the, the small muscles and, and there's a lot of strengthening going on there with the overload underload principle to allow more recovery. So Guys are healthier and they're recovering recovery quicker so they can get back out. Um, you see more velocity nowadays, no doubt. Uh, you're throwing a heavier object. You're training with heavier items and then picking up something lighter. Um, the biggest thing is making sure that we do have strength in those areas of decelerators and stuff like that. I think it's a good thing. And for any young pitching coach out there, I think understanding the concepts of it, it's only going to allow you to expand on who you are and what you are. It, it's not for everybody. There's some guys that have had success and never picked up a wave ball before, and that's fine. You need to understand who they are and what has made them successful and what makes them click. But you're also going to have young guys that come into your programs that live and die on them, live and die on, them. and mm-hmm. you better have an understanding of that. And I think that's just part of adapting with the way the game is going.
0: Uh, I'm on the broadcasting type thing, so. I deal with professional players. I know, Mike, that you you were drafted uh, by the Expos and spent some time in the Carolina League uh, later in your career with Mm -hmm. the Frederick Keys. Uh, How are you able to kind of help your players, um, whether it was as an assistant um, and now as a head coach, to make that potential leap to becoming a professional ball player?
2: Well, I think it it goes back to your daily habits. Uh, One of the things that we – try to preach here and I, I mean I have two simple rules in our program <laughs> you know some people have the, the commandments and lists and this and that I try to tell our guys two things number one be on time every day and for me on time is making sure you're there 15 minutes ahead of time but if you're on time and anything and everything you need to do that's showing somebody that you care uh, the second simple thing is give me your best give me your best in everything you do And when I say that, for our guys, it's not only in the classroom, it's not only on the field, it's off the field. When we're trying to prepare our guys for professional baseball, uh, it's not just what they can do on the field, but as we've been talking about here, how do you train your body off the field? How are you going to be able to recover and be ready for the next day? Um, We played in arguably the best conference in the country. Competition is going to prepare us. What these guys go through in our league and our schedule It will prepare them. Not baseball, really. I don't want to say it's easier. Um, The toughest thing for them is probably learning how to handle the travel. Mm -hmm. You know, and and I try to tell them what we went through as former players and things to look for. Um, Dan Hammer was a draft pick with the Baltimore Orioles last year, one of our right-handed pitchers. And I saw him yesterday as he's working out in our indoor facility and getting ready for spring training. And I said, okay, Sarasota, you've never been there. Like you know what to expect. Like you try to pass along little things and how and um, how things were back then, what they can expect, um, and you know any experience that you've had as a coach that you can pass along to your guys that want to continue on the next level. It's only going to prepare them and allow them to be ready. Because um, the last thing you want to do as a college baseball player or a professional baseball player as not be ready for that situation or as, as seasons coming about.
1: Awesome. In, in doing so, Mike, you have made four trips to the College World Series as a coach. And given that that's the ultimate goal for any college baseball program, is that something that you talk about just as your experience with your players? Is that something that kind of hangs in the locker room? Is it something that they focus on when they go to work? How do you approach that? I've taken the approach of, you know, and I know some coaches, they'll, they'll
2: talk about it till they're blue in the face. Um, we talk about competing for championships. And the reason I say that, championships come in a lot of different fashions for a college baseball player. For us, it could be a regular season championship. It could be a conference tournament championship. It could be a regional championship. It could be a super regional championship. It could be the ultimate goal of, yes, going to Omaha. Um, Some programs, some people say, you know, the goal is to win it all. Um, I've always been part of programs, and, and the belief that I have, the goal is to go to Omaha. And when you've been there as a player, um, it's one thing. When you've been there as a coach to see a graduating senior or a junior that you know is going to sign a professional contract, play his last college game, that is the field he should be walking off of. Um, 2005, it hit me. Uh, my first year coaching Division One baseball, you know, 94, 95, I was really lucky with Florida State that the pleasure to go play in Rosenblatt. And, and just, it was a normal habit, normal routine. And in 05, the University of Tennessee, my first year coaching, we uh, beat Georgia Tech in the super regional. We go to Omaha. And, you know, we went out there, played a couple of games, and we're walking off the field, and I remember seeing Chris Howell, who was the senior right-hander we had, and Eli Orge, the right fielder. Uh, high-round draft pick, just hugging and crying and just thinking to myself as a coach, this is what they deserve. Mm -hmm. So the opportunity, whether it was Tennessee, Oklahoma, Florida State, or one day in Pittsburgh, it's about creating memories, uh, memories from student athletes, opportunities, and more importantly, lifelong experiences. So would you say it's a goal? No doubt. It is. Mm -hmm. It's always in the back of your mind. But we want to take steps along the way and enjoy the championships and the dog piles to get there.
1: One of the things I wanted to also mention, too, is given the fact that you've had a lot of your experience in the SEC, the ACC, the Midwest, the South, uh, what's your impression of high school ball in the Northeast versus the South? You know, I, North, South, East, West, mm-hmm.
2: you know, I try to tell people like Michigan and uh, in Oregon State, they, uh, they play for national championships. That's on I check. They're, they're not a South. So uh, they're, they're quality baseball wherever you go. I, I really believe, like, it goes in cycles and it goes in pockets. Um, and just, like, year to year, whether it's the SEC, the ACC, Big 12, uh, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, an area when I was in Florida, like whether the Tampa area was better than the Miami area or the Miami area is better than the, the, the Panhandle area, it, it kind of goes in cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been very impressed. You know, there's probably – five or six, when I say Division One Power Five, uh, you know, 22s or 23s in our Whitfield area right here, right now. You know, uh, we, we have a young man, Austin Hendricks, in the Whitfield who's committed to Mississippi State, been committed to him for four years. I saw him three, four years ago down in Lake Point. Like, he's going to go first round. Like, first round. First rounders come from all areas. It's becoming more and more um uh, I want to say available to young student-athletes, the opportunity for them to play all over the country, the opportunity for them to train inside because the facilities have expanded so much. Uh, You can find players. And the one thing I have noticed is there's great athletes, and there's, when I say untapped arms, there's arms with less mileage on them. So that's, that's been the exciting thing for me.
0: How are you able to help players make a decision to attend Pitt? I saw that you guys just installed new turf at your field, and I'm sure that, that kind of helps with some of the snow and, and drainage maybe and the appeal of playing on a turf field opposed to grass. Some players might like more. But, you know, the facility that you have at Pitt and obviously the renovations you've had made at the field, you know, what what is your – I don't want to say pitch, but what, how do you – talk to a player and say, hey, this is why it could be a good fit for you.
2: You know, and I've, I've always been an individual that, you know, whether I'm here or whether I'm anywhere else, um, the recruiting process, it's not a trick em jam em pressure them type situation. You want someone that's going to be happy. You want someone that wants to be there. You want somebody that believes in what you believe in in your program. Um, we know we're we're we are building something special here, and the key word is building. We have a lot of scaffolding going on on campus. Uh, we just redid our our uh, surface with the AstroTurf company, uh, their new Diamond Nine series, and it's it's phenomenal. It's state of the art technology, and you know your 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 brown infield skin plays like dirt. Your green grass areas play like grass. It's it's top of the top of the of the food chain when it comes to to building a field. Um, We've been excited with our new branding and our new logos here in the last year. And not only that, just allowing us to expand on our facilities with our team rooms and our players' lounges. We have a full commitment from our athletic department, uh, not just with baseball, but top to bottom, from football all the way down to lacrosse, who's joining us here in two years. It has allowed us to put together a vision of competing for championships, competing in the best country in the league, best best league in the country. Like I think it was Duke last year that finished eighth, eighth in our league, but yet they were one game away from Omaha. You know, they beat mm. Vanderbilt in a super regional game one, Who Vanderbilt eventually won a national championship. So this league will prepare them. So what I always try to talk about is providing opportunity. We can provide a great education for the number one public school in the northeast. We've got great engineering schools, business schools. It is a phenomenal institution when it comes to education. Okay? Now we have young men going into professional baseball year after year. We're playing the most competitive league. You're going to skip two levels once you do go into baseball, professional baseball, so you have the best of both worlds. You can provide yourself with a quality education and compete at the highest level and surround yourself with a coaching staff that has done nothing but develop
1: professional athletes, that's going to be a a recipe for success. And that's what we look to do. One of the things I wanted to pick your brain on while we had you on the podcast Coach, was uh, given the fact that we have an academy in Northeastern PA, and I always joke around and say, you know what, there, there are some things I feel that are undertaught. I've probably said this to dozens of people. I said, if I were to rank my three favorite things to teach, number one would be catching defense because I see a lot of times people just say, hey, catch the bullpen, go hit, catch the bullpen, go hit. They don't work on, obviously, the footwork, the transfers, the throws, blocking, you know, presentation, any of that stuff. So my second favorite thing is teaching outfield defense because it's essentially like let's just hit them fly balls versus, you know, drop step, routes the balls, throwing priority, tons of other stuff. But another thing that's my favorite thing to teach at the academy is the left-handed pickoff move.
2: <laughs> and, you because you
1: think about it, you'll see 20 high school lefties in a year, and how many of them have a plus pickoff move? It, it's a, it's kind of a lost art and a rarity, I think, sometimes in today's amateur game. So given the fact that you were left-handed, i got to ask you, how was your move, and how do you use what you've learned about it as a lefty yourself to teach that to kids in your program?
2: The problem with my left-handed move was I had too many opportunities to use it because I had too many guys <laughs> on base. <day. laughs> um, I don't want to say I was average with it. I, I mean, that's kind of – I always felt like it, even as a player, I was just average across the board. But I tried to use – I don't want to say my baseball my IQ or baseball smart. I mean, the, the easiest thing I, I tried to tell myself was I needed to understand if I was going to pick on this pitch, what did I do the previous two pitches, three pitches? You know, were, were my was I looking at home when I pitched versus looking at first? You know, was I toe up, toe down kind of guy? You know, I wanted my delivery to be the same because I wanted to throw consistent strikes, and you want your delivery to continue to look like you're going home. I've always said this. You don't pick off base runners. They get themselves picked off. Right. Yeah. You really don't pick them off. They get themselves picked off, you know. I think it's great what you're talking about with the indoor stuff, with, you know, the catching and the outfield drills and those type of things as well. You know, we've expanded with our catchers. Now now there's more talking, more uh, technology or uh, data being shown about the one knee versus the secondary position and stealing more pitches. And that's something that we really harp on our guys. Can you make a difference in each and every pitch? It's not just the pitch that's thrown, is it a ball in strike, but how you present it, how you can make it in you know, We talk to our outfielders, can we be efficient and get that thing to the cutoff guy as quick as possible? You might not have the best arm, but you might be the fastest guy to get to it, but if you can get it to the, to the guys that want to make the throws and make the decisions, get it to them quickly. So There's constant things that need to be worked on, especially in your indoor stuff, you know, your Arctic moves. Going back to that, that's something that's constantly, you know, when you were talking about those five, six days in between your starts or relievers, your recovery days, you know, it helps tie in your delivery. You know, you might pick up something on your delivery that you're working on in your dry runs that you're working on in your picks, but ultimately it goes back to being athletic, that's for sure.
1: One of the things Corey mentioned uh, before we brought you on and how we opened it with the whole sign-stealing scandal, how it came to fruition through social media and reports, and it just kind of snowballed from there. Uh, so now, given the fact that assistant coaches and all, you're an assistant coach at all those major programs, now as the head coach in the ACC, is there anything you discuss do's and don'ts with your players about the role of social media in their life? You know, we we do have training
2: seminars. Uh, we have guest speakers that come in. Um, we always, you know, stay with the, you know, simple message of think before you hit send, you know, those type of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also try to let them know, like, once it's out there, it's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we use the funny example of uh, our, our trainer, Kyle Cook. He dressed up uh, for Halloween with his, with his fiance, and she had him in some pink bunny outfit on Instagram or something like that. And next thing you know, Once it's out there, like, whether you wanted it to be posted or not, it's always going to be out there and it's always going to follow you. One of the best stories I ever heard, I believe it was when Twitter first came out years ago, and we used to have a program back at Florida State, and it was the life skills program, and we do a lot of this here. And they had a young catcher that came to the director and just said, hey, I've got somebody that, you know, has a uh, fake account. And they're kind of posing as me, so I need some help with that. And the director said, well, how do I know which account is fake and which one is real? He says, I don't have an account. I'm going to be hitting the batting cage. I don't need social media. His name was Buster Posey. Wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. So social media can't help guys. Sometimes guys just need to block out the outside noise, the fake news, those kind of things. Uh, Sometimes they need to just focus on what they need to do and their
0: tools. You know, you mentioned the social media. Uh, obviously, I'm sure Pittsburgh does a fantastic job of, of creating highlights and, and highlighting your program and every program there. And you mentioned what you guys kind of do to, in terms of them tweeting or posting something. But how do you kind of keep your players in line so they're not too worried about making, you know, a top ten player or worried about, oh, is this going to get seen by thousands of people um, just with the age of social
2: media? Well, I, I think there's two ways to look at it. Uh, social media, uh, some, some people try to, I don't want to say, I don't want to use the correct terminology here, but some, some programs or some coaches just try to draw a hard line, like, hey, you can't be honest with that. I, I would like to prefer and go with it, hey, let's educate, because I think it can help people. I think it's, it's part of society, it's part of who we are, it's part of the coming years, and let's learn how to, when I say this, use it in a good way, we use it to promote our programs, our camps, to provide highlights for the good things. How can we promote a positive message? Let's make sure we use it in the correct way. And I think if we educate um, our student athletes and talk about it in an open forum, then it can be used in the right way. I have a fourteen year old daughter, a twelve year old son. You know, I could Go one way and just not buy them a phone, not allow them to do things, or I could teach them why it is a good thing, how you can use it as a good thing, and what is the right way and what is the wrong way. And I think that's what we choose to do at the University of Pittsburgh in our life skill programs um, with with uh, social media and how they're going to move forward. is It's out there. It's part of what's
1: going to be there. Let's make sure we use it. Use it the right way. That's a great point. Mike, that brings us to the last part of our podcast. Corey and I developed nine questions that we call the bandbox inquisition. Okay. And so uh, we're going to start off firing away. I'll start with the first question. Number one, as a coach, how do you define success?
2: I think you define success based on how successful your student athletes are. And it's not just on the field, but more importantly in life as a husband, as a father, and, and, and success in a career.
0: What is your greatest moment in coaching?
2: That's a tough one, greatest moment in coaching. Honestly, there's been a lot of wins. There's been a lot of tears. I think one of the greatest moments was the day that I accepted this job at the University of Pittsburgh. The the moment I got to share with my wife and two kids. That opportunity to uh, take a step forward and a challenge into something new, but to, to share that with them. What's the best piece of advice you could give to another coach? Understand your strengths. Understand your weaknesses. Always be prepared and organized. Um, you can't fake it because student-athletes will look right through it.
0: What was your worst moment in coaching, and what did you learn from it?
2: Wow, worst moment in coaching. I think uh, <laughs> we'll go back to sign stealing. I think just in a simple moment of, of youth and young coaching at an early age where I felt like another game had my signs, where I felt like I was putting my players at a disadvantage, where I felt like I was letting them down.
1: It's funny you mention that up because we, we can all get paranoid because sometimes you might think they have it and they don't. Yeah. Or, yeah, or, yeah. They're, or they're the way around. You know, it's uh, I've seen seen guys do things like, uh, I'm, I'm going to stare in the dugout and wait until he gives this sign, and then I'm going to flash my sign, and then I'm going to wipe it off and wait until he gives this sign again. <laughs> and It's like the way, well, man, does that guy have my signs? Look what he's doing. It's like, yeah, you're right, though, but it definitely makes you feel – a little, a little bit, you know, on edge when, when that when that stuff rears. Next question, what excites you the most about coaching? Seeing young know, men develop uh, from not where they start but how they
2: finish and what lies ahead for them, whether it's on the field or off the field.
0: What is the most difficult or challenging part about being a coach? Uh,
2: I think per, not personally but just uh, from what I see across the country, it's balance, balance between – what you love to do each and every day, and uh, who you are from from a family standpoint to a coach, uh, making sure that you are developing enough time not only for your children, your wife, your spouse, your family members, but also giving those players that program each and everything you have every day.
1: One of the best pieces of advice I got from an older scout was, uh, if you're not careful, what we can what we do can consume us. 100%. Yeah, okay, and you bring, up, you bring up a great point about fighting that balance. What's one good piece of advice you can give to players about life? <laughs>
2: I'm a pretty simple guy. Uh, I'm pretty short with words. So, like, for my life, when I say this, give everything you have. If it's something you believe in, something that you want, don't leave any stone unturned. I, say, I try to give our players, you know, as they're moving on to professional baseball, you don't give them any reason to let you go. Make sure you give
0: it everything you have. Awesome. If you have a conversation with any one person in the history of civilization, whom would it be and why?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: oh, boy. You dropped the history of civilization on me there.
1: Well, <laughs> you know what? It's it's one of those things, like, we, we threw it in there, and we get the most laughs out of it. I think you're our eighth coach we've had on, eighth podcast. And it's basically, like, it's open-ended, man. It could be celebrity. It could be alive, dead. could be family. It's just, I think it, I, when you throw that out there, it tells you a lot about the coach and say, hey, who, who would I like to speak with?
2: Yeah, that's what I'm sitting there going before I answer this. Like, how
1: I answer this, I'm going to be really
2: judged in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> No, there's uh, no
1: judgment. There's no
2: judgment. No, right. no. But, uh, uh, right, right. Man, gosh. That's, uh, mm, boy, That's, can we come back
1: to that one? <laughs> <For> sure.
0: Sure, <laughs> yeah, we'll, come, we'll come back to it. There's a,
2: there's there's back question, to
1: nine. Question, question nine is, finally, at the end of your career, what would you like your players to have said about you? He gave us everything he had. Mm-hmm. He believed in
2: us. We love playing for him.
1: we got to circle back now, right? we got to circle back. We gotta, well, you know what? We've had, Corey, help me out here. We've had... Jesus Christ, twice. Yeah. Uh, three, times, had, three times. Uh, three times, all right. We've had Abe Lincoln. Okay. Uh, we've had somebody say their grandfather, who they didn't really get to know that well. That's mm-hmm. uh, who, who am I missing? Uh,
0: I'm trying to think. Yeah, there's, there's really some good answers. Um, I forgot. I think those are the ones that definitely stuck out to me. Did someone, did, did
1: someone say Martin Luther King? Uh,
0: I think so, or Jackie Robinson, one of the two.
1: Yeah, I mean, so uh, now Coach Bell's on deck. Well, I'll say this:
2: I'm I'm a a big fan of football, um, Mm -hmm. and I've never really thought about this. Uh, And it's kind of a you know, when I say football, I'm a big you know when it comes to leaders and leaders of programs and stuff like that. uh, I think it would be me to hear uh, like a Vince Lombardi, a Paul Bear Bryant, those Mm -hmm. type of guys.
1: Uh, gotcha. Probably one of
2: those probably one of those two that probably need from a from a leading leading standpoint. Uh, I think yeah. football and baseball they cross over and translate in a lot of different ways. And I think one of those two individuals and what yeah. they've done for their sports would be would be a neat one.
1: Man, there's there's so many different things you'd be able to learn from both guys at different levels, everything from coaching to motivation to the experience of playing with them to how they got inside each of their players heads yeah there's an unlimited amount of untapped information you could probably figure from both of those guys but that takes us into the podcast mike thanks so much for coming on with us. yeah my year was a blast
0: as always and uh really learned a lot and uh best of luck this upcoming season
1: i'm always
2: a caller text away and I appreciate you guys taking time to have me on and look forward to seeing you guys and hearing you guys down the road. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, Mike, And night. I throw this one out with you. Before we end it, I, I know you a long time, and you've always been the first guy to be helpful and to, to lend a hand whenever needed. I know for the first one time in a long time there's a ton of excitement building at University pittsburgh since your arrival i know that you guys are uh, doing some great things and i think everybody's watching not only throughout the state but throughout the northeast and expecting great things to happen now that you guys got this ship going the right way and, and uh i just want to thank you for always being a straightforward honest guy someone that someone could always trust or trust their son to and you know, thanks for being a friend all these years and i, I wish you guys the best of luck this season Sounds good. I appreciate it again. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Look forward to talking to you guys soon. Okay. All right. Have a good one. Take care, Corey. It was great having you bell on. gave us a lot of things to think about as we approach the preseason here, from uh, practicing indoors to how he handles his pitchers to his experience as a professional pitcher, as a coach who has been in the College World Series multiple times, and now is in he builds a program at the University of Pittsburgh.
0: Yeah, it really was, and I think what stood out to me the most was you know we asked him about the talent level or and everything else, he said. you know, last time I checked, Oregon and, and Michigan are, aren't in the south or they're not in Florida. So, you know, they're able to figure out ways to deal with the cold weather. And I, I think for a lot of people and coaches who might be listening on the East Coast, um, you know, to just listen to the attitude and the mindset that Mike has and, and other coaches that we've spoken to on the weather, you know, they, they don't let it hinder the type of practice they're going to have. They don't let it affect the mindset. I think that's a, a really... Positive sign for the coach and obviously the
1: program. Like I said, they're working extremely hard and signing a lot of quality players, so they're definitely going forward. Going to be a formidable force in the ACC this year and for years to come. I uh, want to remind our listeners at Bandbox Podcast if you have any questions you'd like us to ask our upcoming guests or any potential guests you'd like us to interview. Corey, thanks a lot again for another great episode. Corey Neto and Paul McGloy. enjoy the week and we'll see you next Friday.